uh, turn uh, for a moment to uh, the first epistle of Peter, First Peter, uh, and uh, chapter one, and the opening words uh, of the epistle. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those wrecks who are elect exiles of dispersion Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied uh, to you. Now, it's a pleasure at some levels to be with you tonight. I'm not used uh, to such large gatherings in my class. It's between five and twelve people. And uh, this is rather an excess of my usual uh, environment. But I have happy memories uh, of this place going back uh, many, many years. And it's a joy to renew that acquaintance with the building uh, and uh, with so uh, many uh, of you whom I've known from previous experiences. And as you can tell from what happened a few moments ago, uh, its geography is quite alien to me, and I wasn't aware that there were uh, other uh, eminences behind me uh, here, so sorry for that moment uh, of, of embarrassment. Now, I want to turn to those words that Peter has given to us at the head of this letter, and uh, they serve uh, two purposes. Uh, they tell us, first of all, who the letter is from, and then who the letter is for, uh, two simple points. And I want to uh, build my thoughts uh, around uh, these uh, two particular poles. First of all, uh, who is the letter from? Well, Peter is quite plain. It's from Peter. Uh, Peter, he says, an apostle uh, of Jesus Christ. Uh, it has the same message as those of Paul or John or James, uh, the same gospel. Nevertheless, uh, it's from this particular person, uh, the Apostle Peter. And he is, he says, an apostle, that is, a sent one, uh, a messenger commissioned by Christ to witness to him uh, to the very ends of the earth. And uh, Peter was... Uh, uh, given uh, special gifts for that ministry. He was filled with God's Spirit. He was with the Lord in the Mount of the Transfiguration. He saw his miracles. He saw the risen Christ. And all these were part and parcel of his preparation uh, for this apostolic uh, ministry. But he was also, of course, a fisherman. And that too is part uh, of his life of service because all that we have in terms of background and in terms of education uh, or social uh, environment uh, uh, all these things are part of what we bring uh, to our service and I have no doubt that Peter learned much uh, on the tempestuous sea of Galilee that has stood him in good stead in later years uh, in his uh, apostolic ministry so all we are, all we have not only our spiritual uh, lives, but also our day-to-day -day lives uh, and the natural gifts. All these are 
part and parcel of what we owe, what we mean to the Lord uh, in our service. And of course, Peter was also uh, a flawed individual. And there is nothing unique about that. Uh, We all are, uh, to alarming degrees, flawed men and women. Even the Lord's own presence, the Apostle Peter was sometimes uh, very hard to control, and he was given to outbursts of uh, sometimes uh, uh, careless uh, expression. Uh, And of course then you have the denial uh, at the end of the Lord's own ministry, uh, and that of course leading to that sublime moment uh, when he goes out and weeps bitterly for the Lord, catches his eye. And so a man of uh, great physical courage, a man of great practical experience on the seas, as a fisherman, uh, a man of tempestuous personality, a man who had seen things that none of us can uh, claim to have seen in the company of the Lord, and it's all brought to bear uh, upon his ministry. And fundamentally, he was a church planter who played uh, a primary role in establishing the church in Jerusalem and more widely among the Jews. But he was also, as this epistle makes plain to us, he was a pastor with a deep concern uh, for the wider church of God, not only for the unconverted and the unreached, the unevangelical, but also Uh, for those who were converted and had their own pressing spiritual needs. That's why we have the epistle to deal with this, with the the problems that these people faced that he addressed in the epistle. Uh, And so the Lord had said to him, uh, Yes, go be my witness, but he also said to him, Go feed my lambs uh, and feed my sheep. And both categories need to be fed Uh, The young, uh, I hope, know they need to be fed, but so do those of us who are so very much older. We too uh, live precarious spiritual lives and need to be kept by God's power uh, to the very day of salvation. We need to be fed uh, by the word of God and by those sent to expound that word to us so Yes, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, my sheep feed my lambs. That also is part uh, of the Lord's order. It's very important that the sheep themselves being fed should also feed the lambs. And the lambs should go where the sheep are in order to be fed. So we have this man, Peter, uh, very, very uh, much a man at this point, uh, not far from his own eventual martyrdom in Rome at the hands of Nero, but still uh, serving the Lord actively uh, as his commissioned uh, apostle. So it's from him, and of course uh, all our service is individualistic. We all serve uh, in our own way. Peter is not Paul, Paul is not John, John is not James, James is not Luke, uh, Mary is not Martha, and so on. All these variations, and uh, the church is such a tapestry 
uh, of individual experiences and individual talents uh, we've all had uh, or all moments of, of ovulation uh, or moments of real uh, despondency uh, way down perhaps in the depths sometimes in the heights sometimes uh, no variation at all for long periods but anyway here we are each saying to the Lord what John Calvin said in his great motto uh, I offer my heart uh, to you uh, O Lord so here is Peter who has seen so much and heard so much and done so much and who has failed so often and wept such bitter tears and all that's part and parcel uh, of his ministry and so tonight you know when we say to ourselves well who am I that I should do this or venture to say that how dare I pretend to serve but whoever we are we have our own place that nobody else can fill within the body of Christ. And if we don't serve God where he placed us, uh, then nobody will fill that space for us. John Knox said at one moment to American Scots, which challenged him as to why he dared speak to her in such bold uh, democratic language, he said, she said, who are you? And he said, well, I am, he said, demanded of God to speak the truth and speak it, I must impure to list. And you are in the place that God has put you, some eminent in many ways, some not so eminent. God has his own scale, different from our scale very often. But just as you are, just where we are, that is where we are called upon to serve the Lord with our widow's might, perhaps, or with the amazing talent of someone like St. Paul or Augustine or Calvin or Luther, whoever we are, each one obligated to play uh, our own part. And it's a challenge that I would leave with you. How many of us uh, succumb to the temptation uh, to not serve because we don't feel worthy of it or equipped for it. Now it cannot be. There is no ungifted person in the Church of Christ. No ungifted member in the body of Christ. And therefore there are to be no passengers uh, in the Church or body uh, of uh, the Lord Jesus. Remember the psalmist tells us that from the mouths of babes and sucklings, God has commanded praise. And the devil loves to destroy your self-esteem, and that has its own merits. But it also disables us, because we say, I'm not worthy to do this or say that, and it leaves us paralyzed. And the place we ought to fill, and the word we ought to speak, goes unfilled uh, and unuttered. Well, so much for the man who wrote the letter. But who is it for? We know a great deal about them from other sources beyond this epistle. We know that, for example, they are a very, very young church. These are very uh, early disciples uh, of the Lord. They weren't raised in Christian homes. They had no great decades of instruction as you have had. And yet the apostle... He doesn't write down to them 
but he writes up to them. He addresses their minds. He honors them with an interest in the gospel and its great doctrines, young though they are. He expects them to love these truths and to wrestle with them and to relish them and to long for more teaching on these great themes so that a young, young church, maybe some 20 years old at the most, and many among them much younger than that, or even the very elders would be young men, young believers. And yet this epistle is so challenging, theologically, inexhaustible. And it's meant not for theologians, but it's meant for young believers. It's for them, it's their food, their drink, it's what feeds the sheep and what feeds the lambs. We know too that they were persecuted, but not much is said of that here. But they were going through hard times, distracting times, and many would perish uh, in a fiery trial. But it's not on their youthfulness or on the tribulations that Peter focuses. Instead, he homes in on two great realities. First of all, the relation to God, and then the relation to the society around them. And I want to meditate with you for a moment uh, on just those uh, two dimensions uh, of this passage. First of all, their relation to God. Now, you see at once that there are the three divine persons. There's the Father, there's the Spirit, and there is God, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are related to each one of them because each one was and is involved in our salvation. Uh, each is uh, performing his uh, own uh, role, doing his own work, God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit, each involved uh, in the Lord's own ministry, in the Lord's crucifixion, in the Lord's resurrection, and in my conversion on yours, because it's not as if uh, Christ went home uh, to his Father, left it to the Spirit, continuing the work, but the Lord Jesus still is active, and God the Father is still active, and the Spirit too, of course, is still active. And so behind every conversion, and with you, every step of the way, there is a triune God, in all the fullness uh, of his majesty, uh, cooperating in love with each other uh, and sharing uh, a love for you. It's not only that all three persons uh, are one in substance, as you learn in your catechism, but they're also one in love with a passionate commitment uh, to your salvation. And so each one was involved, each one is still involved in a daily way in your uh, spiritual progress. And each of them, God the Father is here tonight as we gather, and God the Son is here, and God the Spirit is here too. And in you as you live and work and walk, each one dwells as the one God in your heart. You're such, therefore, uh, amazing people. So here, the three are all involved uh, in your salvation. 
but the apostle does itemize it and sunder relates different parts of experience and privilege uh, to different persons. Let's note that apportionment for just a moment. First of all, he says that we are elect. We are chosen by God. And one can say that means fundamentally that we are, in God's eyes, we are choice people. It's hard to believe that we are choice people. Just as God's own son Jesus was his elect, his special one, his choice person, so each one of God's children is choice. And each of us owes all that we have to this choice that God has made of us. And it's traced back by Peter to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That is, it's traced back into eternity itself. And it's not simply a knowledge, but as the rabbis used to insist, it is a knowledge which carries with it a deep, deep affection, a love. It's an eternal love. The astonishing thing that God knows us and God loves us simultaneously because the one ought to preclude the other. The knowledge ought to say that person is not lovable and yet God knows and God loves. And God's always known us and God's uh, always loved his own children. And that is a remarkable fact to ponder. Uh, We've known each other a long time, many of us. But God knew us before any of us knew each other. God's known us from all eternity. And God's loved us. God's been aware of us. God's had his purpose for us. God's known our names. God's got his book. Our names in the book. God's plan for us in the book. All that is brought before us here. God's foreknowledge of us. God's eternal love. Now, I can express that in words. Can I visualize it? No, I cannot. But it's such a precious thing, you know, that we 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 parted company so often the last number of months with those we've loved in this world and known in this world. And we say, well, I knew him for so many, many years. But it strikes me so often, well, God knew him before I knew him. God knew her before I knew her. In fact, God's never been without knowing you. Not in some purely intellectual way, like some great planner, some abstract planner, but he's known you with his great paternal love. And so often as he looked, watched over us in our pilgrimage down through the years, he has been filled with compassion. And he has pitied us and I might go so far to say that, you know, God has pitied you from all eternity because he has foreseen your troubles from all eternity. And he said, this compassion for you, it just doesn't happen the day that the trouble hits us, and then it hits God. 
It's always been before God's mind. You've been before God's mind with all your troubles, but you've also been before Him with uh, uh, all the great destiny that God has planned for you, all the blessings, all those blessings that fill our hearts with wonder, love, and praise. So God has foreknown us from all eternity. And God, having no foreknown us, has formed this great plan to conform us, to conform you to the image of his own Son. And uh, that plan's been there. God's never been without that plan. I might even say that even before man fell, before the human race fell, that God's plan was to conform us, to make us Christ-like. He has foreknown and foreloved us from all eternity. And of course that means that this love will never let go. There are things that obscure it. Clouds that seem to blot it out. A darkness that hides God's face. Our own unbelief. Our own doubts. Our own guilt. Extremities of pain, which sometimes some of you have to go. And these things hide God's face, but they don't hide you from God's face. This love never lets go. There's a beautiful Hebrew word, a very, very simple word, the word chesed. God's loving kindness God's unfailing love, the love that is always there, even in the darkness, even when we can't see and when we can't feel. So this love, God has loved us, he's known us, he's ordained us to salvation from before the beginning of the world. And so God has chosen us and what's he chosen us to? Well, the uh, apostle tells us we've been elect, he says, to uh, be sanctified by God's Spirit, to obedience and to the belief of the truth. First, he says, this sanctification by God's Spirit. Now, it's not so much this, what we call the process of growing in grace, but a moment of consecration when God sets you apart. We sometimes set elders apart, the eldership, deacons, the diaconate, ministers to ministry, missionaries to their own missionary fields, and it is a moment of, of special dedication and consecration. And in many ways also a moment of separation. And God has ordained us to be set apart, to be taken out of the old stock of Adam and grafted into the new stock of the last Adam, the Lord Jesus. In other words, it's not so much growth, although there is growth, but it's a decisive change. And it's effected by God's Spirit when he calls us by his own word and blesses the word to us 
And by that word sets us apart. He dedicates us to his own service, calls us out of the world. We were dead in sins. He makes us alive. We were serving the flesh. We were what Paul calls the old man. We become new. We become bearers and exponents of our new resurrection life. It's a definitive and irreversible change. And that's happened to every single believer in this audience tonight. Everyone has been selected by God, for ordained by God to be consecrated so that we are no longer our own. We're no longer dead in sins. We are no longer unequipped to serve God. We are called, we are vessels set apart to a holy use, consecrated, dedicated to the service of God. And he wants to emphasize that fact for us. We are elect in or through uh, this sanctification. Of course, you see, so often people say, well, this election doctrine, this predestination doctrine, it is uh, uh, inimical to, to sanctification. Because if we elect, we can live as we please, and then God will still save us at the end. But you see here this intimate, intimate link between election and sanctification. Elect to sanctification. Elect to be holy. Not because we were holy. Not to make holiness unnecessary. But because God has undertaken, as I mentioned earlier on, to make us Christ-like. And it's not a matter of logic. That's what we were to say, I mustn't be unholy uh, because I'm elect. It's not simply that. But God will not let his people live lives which lack this essential element and dimension of holiness. We are elect to it. God will see to it. Now that will raise, of course, many, many mysteries for us. But when God begins, God will complete and God will finish. So we are elect, not because holy, not to make holiness unnecessary, but in order to be holy, because we cannot sanctify ourselves. So God will set us apart, and then God will cause us to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then elect unto obedience. And in some ways, it's the same idea. Elect by the grace of God, not because we have been obedient, or because we have become believers, or because we've been converted, but elect to obedience. The obedience is the consequence. My faith is the consequence of the result, not the cause or my being chosen by God. Elect to obedience. Elect uh, to be sanctified. Elect to be obedient. And this is where, of course, what God counsels in eternity comes, breaks forth in time. 
we see our election, we see it in this fact of our obedience, the obedience of faith, for one thing, and the obedient lives that follow. Are these going right back to this great fountain of the invincible grace of God? So this choice God has made of you, as a result of it, we are sanctified and set apart and transformed. And as a result of it, we live lives of obedience to the words. We acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus, because that's what obedience means. What is holiness? What is a saintly person? Is it somebody whose head is always in the clouds, always has mystical experiences, knows a good deal of theology? Is it not the case, and I find this so challenging, that holiness is obedience? Whatever God is saying to you, through his word and providence, there obey, because it's not in some overwhelming experience, it's not in some magical moments or many such moments, but in this fact, this voice that says what Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God, taking God seriously. Remember, we read from Exodus chapter 24, and I'll come back to that later on. We will obey, they said. That's a great thing. This submission to the Lordship of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, this Lord, in every department of our lives, every area of our existence, Jesus Christ is Lord, my Lord, and my God. And so elect to obedience, to sanctification or consecration, and then to obedience, and to the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, at the first and most obvious level, this means that the blood that cleanses from all sin is sprinkled on you. And it's such a a remarkable image because, you know, one can say at one level, well, blood's a messy thing. Not a cleansing medium, but messy. And the point, of course, is that the cross is a very ugly thing and an abhorrent thing. You may know in Cooper's great hymn there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Many modern hymn books refuse to contain that hymn because the image is too abhorrent. And yet, there is no other place where you or I can find cleansing from guilt, from the power of sin, from its pollution particularly, but in the blood, that great promise If we confess our sins, the blood cleanses us from all sins. And of course, that is for many of us a point when our discipleship began. That great moment of discovery when a guilt-ridden conscience 
realizes that God's own Son died in my place and that His sacrifice covers, notice, all sins. We grade grade them, big sins and small sins. But no, that does not register in God's book. Cleanses from all sin. And you say, well, for the last, does that mean? It means one thing, my sin. Because ultimately no other sin matters but my sin to me. And I am sprinkled with it as the blood was sprinkled on the Passover on the doorposts and the lintel or in Exodus 24 on the book of the covenant and on the people. And that blood sprinkled upon them was the blood of privilege. It marked them out as God's covenant people. But it also, of course, meant obligation. We will obey. We have our own part of the covenant to comply with and to fill, to fulfill. But I want to bring this to a conclusion. I, I, I just want to take up for a moment this other idea that these people are elect but in relation to, to society, where are we? Well, we're told that we are exiles, sojourners, strangers, aliens in this world. We are stateless people. We are one nation, Peter will tell us in the second chapter. We are a holy nation. We have a great history, but we have no geography. We don't have our own Christian land or state. We don't have our own commune because we are dispersed through all nations. And everywhere we are, we are exiles and stateless resident aliens with no rights. And in Jeremiah we read of the Old Testament church in exile in Babylon. And I I wanted to to read that for one reason. Because it's very tempting when I say to myself and to others, you know, that we are aliens. This This isn't our world. This is not my country. And therefore I owe nothing but just to attend Christian meetings and the world is no concern of mine. And I can understand that because the world is so depressing and so utterly hostile to us as it's always been. It's no worse than it was in that respect. Both Peter and Paul will feel its full force in the moment of martyrdom, the full force of that hatred. But that doesn't entitle us to wash our hands of it. Go back again to that letter from Jeremiah to the exiles. It's a remarkable piece of Old Testament teaching. Because those exiles were so tempted to hate the Babylonians. And all they stood for and to hate this land. They wanted to hang their harps 
on the trees and never seen again in this foreign and hostile alien world. But God sent word to them and said, Build houses and plant gardens, marry their children, because you belong to this world for the time being. And he said to them, Seek the welfare of the place where you are, and pray for its welfare, the welfare of the hated Babylonian state. Pray for its welfare. Seek its welfare. Pray for its welfare. Because its welfare will be your welfare. And so no matter how disengaged we may feel from the uh, culture of our post-Christian society with all its hostility to our Christian faith and our traditions. We are in the same place and the same obligation as the exiles that Jeremiah wrote to. Here we must build houses and plant gardens. Here we must work for the welfare of our own community and pray for its welfare. Here we must be salt and light. Paul to the Philippians laid down the directive wherever it says you find truth or virtue or beauty or righteousness in your society in this Roman colony. Give your minds to it. Give your support to it. There is much in this world that's abhorrent. Much disturbing condemnation. But there are good things too that deserve our support. Institutions, government, local, national, cultural forces, charities, like the RNRI and so on. Well, the point really is quite simple, is it not? Seek the welfare of the land you don't belong to. Because we have here no continuing city. They were in Babylon for 70 years. And they knew that one day they'd leave it as a nation. And they longed to leave it. But while you're in it, the prophet says, God says, pray for its welfare. They were on the wrong side of Jordan. But that's where God had cast their lot. And we too must, while we long, to be with Christ, which is far better, we must still work for the good of the world we belong to. And that's why this church and congregation are in this town. We are here to be salt and light with a debt imposed upon us by God towards our own community to work for the amelioration of all that is wrong and promote all that is virtuous and good 
and lovely and true. And God who has made us choice people and given us choice resources to enable us to engage in that project with his own presence to help us. May he grant it so. Let's join in prayer. O Lord, have mercy upon us. In all we endeavour to do, we fall so far short of your own standards and fail to honour you as we ought. But Lord, help us amid all that, all the evidence of our own inadequacies and our own ineptitudes, help us to know that we still have a calling, a vocation, collectively as a congregation, individually also as believers apart, to work for the welfare of the world we don't belong to and to pray for your blessing upon it. We thank you, O Lord, for always knowing us and not rejecting us and for forming such a great purpose for us despite our utter unworthiness. O Lord, don't let us go. Keep hold of us to the day of salvation. And glorify your name through us and bless your word in this in this place. That word of power, O Lord, may it inspire and ennoble your people, and may it convict the consciences and persuade the minds of those who hate you. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Uh, the closing uh, psalm is Psalm 126, and uh, we shall uh, sing the whole of this psalm. It's on page uh, 419. We shall sing the whole psalm. When science bondage, God turned back uh, as men that dreamed were we. Let's stand to sing. Oh, it is.
ships rejoice.